0: the election ride home for Wednesday, December 11th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins, with a summary of election news. Today, rumors swirl that Biden might serve for just one term, a new Bush family member is running for Congress in Texas, Buttigieg releases the names of his clients at McKinsey, the impeachment update, incoming Kentucky Governor Bashir swears an oath that he has never fought a duel, and what's up with Deval Patrick? Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, in a story for Politico, Ryan Lizza reported that former Vice President Joe Biden is considering serving for only one term if elected president. I should say, upfront at the end of this story, his campaign denies this whole thing. So keep that in mind. Reading from the beginning of the article, quote, Biden's top advisors and prominent Democrats outside the Biden campaign have recently revived a long-running debate, whether Biden should publicly pledge to serve only one term, with Biden himself signaling to aides that he will serve only a single term. While the option of making a public pledge remains available, Biden has, for now, settled on an alternative strategy quietly indicate that he will almost certainly not run for a second term while declining to make a promise that he, and his advisors, fear could turn him into a lame duck and sap him of his political capital. According to four people who regularly talk to Biden, all of whom asked for anonymity to discuss internal campaign matters, it is virtually inconceivable that he will run for re-election in 2024, when he would be the first octogenarian president. If Biden is elected, a prominent advisor to the campaign said, he's going to be 82 years old in four years, and he won't be running for re-election. End quote. The argument here is that Biden has an age problem. Biden's age raises two core questions. First, is he fit, both mentally and physically, to get the job done? Second, can he appeal to younger voters who might see him as part of the establishment? This article goes deep on one strategy the campaign could use to address those concerns. Reading again from Politico, By signaling that he will serve just one term, and choosing a running mate and cabinet that is young and diverse, Biden could offer himself to the Democratic primary electorate as the candidate best suited to defeat Trump, as well as the candidate who can usher into power the party's fresh faces. This makes Biden a good transition figure, the advisor said. I'd love to have an election this year for the next generation of leaders, but if I have to wait four years in order to get rid of Trump, I'm willing to do it. End quote. After that story came out, Biden's deputy campaign manager, Kate Bedingfield, tweeted to deny the story after having refused comment for the story itself. She wrote, quote, Lots of chatter out there on this, so I just want to be crystal clear. This is not a conversation our campaign is having and not something VP Biden is thinking about, end quote. Next up, a new member of the Bush family is getting into politics in Texas. Pierce Bush is the grandson of former President George H.W. Bush, and he's running in the primary for Texas's 22nd District. That district is currently served by Republican Pete Olson, who is one of the many folks retiring from Congress this year. Bush filed his paperwork at the very last minute, on the last day you could file to be in that primary. That race, however it ends up, is going to be a tough one. Olson narrowly held on to his seat in 2018, and it includes the suburbs of Houston. This is a district the Democrats plan to focus on, because their candidate lost to Olson 47-51 last time around. In part because of that, and because of changing demographics, the Cook Political Report rates that district as a toss-up. It could go either way. Bush is currently the CEO of the Texas arm of Big Brothers Big Sisters. He had previously considered running in the 7th District, which is where his grandfather once served, but he passed that up in favor of the 22nd. Now, there are at least 14 candidates in that Republican primary right now, and they are not happy about having Bush join the race. Reading from an article by Jasper Shearer in the Houston Chronicle, quote, Soon after Bush's announcement, Greg Hill, a Brazoria County court at law judge and Republican candidate for the district, released a statement calling Bush an unproven candidate who has never even spent a night in Brazoria or Fort Bend counties. "While I have great respect for the Bush family, I have strong doubts about any candidate who would try to parachute into our district and buy this seat," Hill said. "Bush, asked about the residency questions, said he and his wife plan to move into the district." We are actively looking for a place to live, and again, I couldn't imagine a better community that represents what's best about this country, Bush said. Congressional candidates are not required by law to live in their districts, though they must live in the state they represent, end quote. So add this one to the list of congressional races to watch. Following up on stories from the past couple of days, Mayor Pete Buttigieg has released the names of his clients when he worked for McKinsey. I'm going to read that list to you now Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, Best Buy, the Natural Resources Defense Council, the Environmental Protection Agency, the U.S. Department of Energy, the U.S. Postal Service, the U.S. Department of Defense, the Energy Foundation, and Loblaws. That last one is a Canadian supermarket chain. Reading from a report by Reed Epstein and Stephanie Saul in the New York Times, quote, On MSNBC Tuesday, Mr. Buttigieg said his work with Blue Cross had nothing to do with claims or what they do with patients. Asked by host Rachel Maddow if his work led to layoffs, Mr. Buttigieg replied, I doubt it. I don't know what happened after the time I left in 2007 when they decided to shrink in 2009. End quote. The other client on that list that raised eyebrows is Loblaws, which was involved in a price-fixing scheme that controlled the price of bread across multiple Canadian grocery store chains for more than a decade. Buttigieg had previously referenced his work at Loblaws indirectly in his memoir, Shortest Way Home. Let me be super clear, though. The bread thing started in 2001, and the Buttigieg campaign says he was not involved in that. But working on that Loblaws gig seemed to solidify his decision to quit McKinsey. After several pages in his memoir writing about his experience working in Toronto on behalf of the grocery chain, he wrote, quote, It felt strange to put in those kinds of hours, not for a cause, but for a client. I wanted to do a good job for my team, my firm, and my client, but this wasn't life-or-death stuff. And so, it may have been inevitable that one afternoon as I set Bertha to sleep mode to go out to the hallway for a cup of coffee, I realized with overwhelming clarity the reason this could not be a career for very long. I didn't care. End quote. And, in case you're wondering, Bertha was the nickname for Buttigieg's laptop at the time.
1: Hiring is challenging, and it used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. Zip Recruiter. In fact, go to ziprecruiter.com/begin. Zip Recruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. And they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, Zip Recruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, Zip Recruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you cannot miss a great match. Zip Recruiter is so effective that 4 out of 5 employers who post on Zip Recruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Right now, listeners here can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that, unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit carvana.com today.
0: And now the impeachment news in about two minutes. Today, the House Judiciary Committee took up the articles of impeachment for markup. Now, markup is what it sounds like. The committee reviews the text of those articles and debates whether to make changes to that text, to mark it up. I have not seen those proceedings, so it's unclear whether any actual changes to the text have been made. In any case, the vote on the final articles is scheduled for 7pm tonight in that committee. The next big question remains, what exactly will happen in the Senate, presuming a Senate impeachment trial does happen? At this point, it is down to speculation. But Ed Kilgore wrote a pretty good summary of that speculation in an article for New York Magazine's Intelligencer. Quote, In November, White House representatives and Senate Republican leaders agreed, more or less, to a compromise. A short trial, two weeks was the most common timeline discussed, with few, if any, witnesses that would respect the solemn trappings of an impeachment proceeding without dragging things out or risking Republican unity. But then, as the House hearings proceeded and impeachment grew nigh, Trump reportedly changed his mind and began warming to the idea of a longer Senate trial that would not only allow a full defense of his conduct in the Ukraine case, but would enable his attorneys and Republican senators to drag in Joe and Hunter Biden and his House Democratic enemies and turn the whole process in the opposite direction. End quote. President Trump has tweeted at times about his desire to call witnesses in a Senate trial. So the nature and duration of that trial remain open questions. We don't know what the Senate will actually do, and it is up to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to plan that process. Next up, an item out of Kentucky. The new governor there, Matt Beshear, was sworn in early Tuesday morning in a private ceremony. That was followed by a large public ceremony. But in the private one, Bashir had to take the oath of office as dictated by the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. And that includes specific language about engaging in duels. This is one of those fun fact, can you believe there's still a law about that kind of things. And frankly, this is one of the few amusing things in politics that I've heard lately. So here's the clip. Listen in. And I do further solemnly swear that since the adoption of the present Constitution And I do further solemnly swear since the adoption of the present Constitution That I have not fought a duel with deadly weapons
1: within this state nor out of it
0: That I have not fought a duel with deadly weapons within this state or without it
1: nor have I sent or accepted a challenge to fight
0: a duel with deadly weapons. Nor have I sent nor accepted a challenge to fight a duel with deadly weapons. <laughs> nor have I aided or assisted any person thus offending. Nor have I aided or assisted any person thus offending. So help me God.
1: So help me God.
0: So there you have it. No duels for Bashir. Adding some context to that, Adam K. Raymond wrote a brief article in New York Magazine's Intelligencer. Quote, Public officials in the Commonwealth have been taking that same oath since 1849, when the language was added to the Kentucky Constitution in an attempt to dissuade aspiring officeholders from settling disputes with gunfire. In recent years, it's become a source of embarrassment for some, including one lawmaker who argued for the section's removal because it perpetuates an image of Kentucky as being backward. The last known duel in Kentucky was in the 1860s. In a speech following his swearing in, Bashir alluded to the anachronistic portion of the oath, saying, Kentucky's oath of office may sound a little outdated to some, but speaking its words created in me a sense of gratefulness, humility, excitement. End quote. Last up today, let's address a candidate who has gotten almost zero coverage on this show since his announcement. Listeners have written in to ask, Hey, what's up with former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick? He's in the race, but we haven't heard much about what he's doing. Well, here's what I've got. Patrick was a named option in recent polls after entering the race in November. For example, we got national polls yesterday from both Quinnipiac and Monmouth universities, but among Democratic primary voters nationally, Patrick barely shows up at all. The Quinnipiac poll has a margin of error of plus or minus 3.8% for the questions they asked of Democrats and Democratic-leaning independents. When asked who they would support in a primary, Patrick was the only candidate who got 0% overall. Okay, so let's look at the Monmouth poll released on the same day. Very similar question, margin of error at plus or minus 5%. How did Patrick do? He got 1%. So if we take national polling as an indicator, Patrick is still relatively unknown. Meanwhile, his campaign sent press an email this morning, indicating that Patrick might not be on the primary ballot in Michigan, despite entering the race before Mike Bloomberg, who will be on that ballot. Campaign manager Abe Rakoff said that Michigan Democrats were requesting that Patrick gather quote, an onerous number of signatures by Friday, end quote, in order to appear on the ballot. Patrick has been campaigning in New Hampshire and South Carolina. Beyond that, to be frank, there's not a ton of media coverage about him. There is one notable piece in BuzzFeed News that came out on Monday. That was by Darren Sands. Reading from the article, quote, Patrick ran for governor in 2006 as a relative unknown, but with a strong resume at the Justice Department and in business that included stints at Coca-Cola and Texaco. There are countless parallels in the political circumstances that led Patrick to run for governor and now for president. Patrick wants to appeal to voters' apathy, a strategy that yielded a result all those years ago, that he said is currently playing itself out in the early days of his campaign. Once again, he said, people are telling him that what he says sounds great, but voters are dubious about whether he can really win. And it's so interesting because the people who can make it happen are sitting right there in front of you. You know, they're voters, he said. I'm trying to remind people, as I did in Massachusetts, that this isn't about somebody else's idea about what the outcome should be. It's about yours. And if you think what I'm about is what you're about, then don't take a chance on me, take a chance on your own aspirations. I've got to persuade people of that again. End quote. Well, that is it for one more episode of the Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Okay, while this show is focused on the U.S. election, it is important to know that there is a major election happening in the U.K., and polls close tomorrow. I am not an expert on that election in the slightest, but I did come across a good roundup of what that election is all about. And wow, (laughs) is it messy. That roundup is the last link in the show notes if you're curious, and you could be reading all the way through the end of the vote if you like. As always, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to y'all tomorrow.